In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I would see it as if it was real, but it wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't like, you know, there's a globe on my desk right here. It's not like I'm looking at the globe and it turns into a gnome and I think a gnome is there. That's, it wasn't that. It was like somehow I could see two realities at the same time. And again, the best comparison I have is to when you're driving on the highway and you just think to yourself, what if I just turn right off? We are excited to bring you the second part of our interview with Brooke Seen. In the last episode, she recounted her experience of receiving a diagnosis for anxiety and depression and being prescribed several psychiatric drugs following the unexpected passing of her father. If you missed the first part of the interview, make sure to go back and listen to it. You won't want to miss her story. In today's episode, we will pick up right where we left off. So without any further delay, let's jump right into the second part of our interview with Brooke Seam. So you bring up really some interesting points that I think is an opportunity for us to discuss. And it's some of these dark thoughts about being human and how we're Mm -hmm. unable to kind of normalize them in certain contexts because of the fear of how others are going to judge us for this. And this is very clear in the mental health system. I have to say it Mm -hmm. to all my clients. Listen, just because you're thinking about suicide doesn't mean I can take away your freedom. You have every right to think about suicide. If it pops up, let's talk about it if you're experiencing it. But there's such a fear about mm-hmm. being open with your mental health provider that they're mm-hmm. going to 302 you and, and take mm-hmm. away your rights. And luckily you had the foresight and awareness, even when you were going through hell with withdrawal, to be careful about what you said, and which takes us to the mm-hmm. next villain in my mind, Dr. Chin. <laughs> yeah. um, Dr. Chin wants you to stop Effexor, XR, cold mm-hmm. turkey from what I, mm-hmm. what I recall. Correct. Which is so fucking dangerous yeah right? like effects or xr is one of those drugs with the really long half-life i believe and short so, half-life or, i'm sorry the really short half-life meaning it leaves your system fairly quickly yes and the withdrawal effects are like horrible mm-hmm. and that is what she instructed you to do Correct. Now, in in her defense, and the wonderful thing about the heroes and villains in my book is that, with the exception of maybe Dr. Sanders, um, I'm not sure anyone, no one was acting maliciously, right? Everyone was kind of out acting under the best information they had at the time. And I mean, I'm a hero and, vil- and villain in my own book as well. Everyone has a role to play. But with Dr. Chin specifically, the reason why she said you need to stop cold turkey is because I was on 37.5 milligrams of Effexor XR, which is the lowest dose on the market. So from her education and understanding at that point in 2016, she couldn't prescribe me a lower dose. So what was the other option, right? That was the way she was thinking. I get that. It's still bad advice though. And unfortunately it's still something that happens even though we definitely know better now. I mean, you know, her attitude about the whole thing wasn't great either, but I could have dealt with that, It, you know, but she didn't, the word hyperbolic tapering hadn't even been invented. She didn't tell me to open up the capsule and start counting the pills. She told me that withdrawal that last a few days and feel like the flu. Like we were dealing in prehistoric ages effectively, comparatively at that point. So 
I don't know if there would have been anybody else in the world who would have told me any different. But part of the and pro- it was still bad. Yeah, but part part of the problem is is that they were, those symptoms have been reported since the drugs yeah. first came to market, and the the physicians just had a way of blaming it back onto the patient as if it's part yeah. of their mental illness. And this is the stuff that makes me angry. It still Right. It still happens today, even though we have a lot more information yeah, a lot. is that, I mean, you're just kind of gaslighting about the entire thing. You start to experience yeah. these side effects from the drugs and they're so brainwashed to believe these drugs are medicinal with minimal side effects that when people report these horrible reactions that they're, they're really pathologized. And so right. it's like another drug for the side effect of that drug or to prevent mm-hmm. this withdrawal and what this does, it, it just puts you into horrible withdrawal. And I don't know how you survived it, to be honest with you. I think about that a lot because, you know, withdrawal, a serious withdrawal lasted for me lasted about a year. And then there was about another year of kind of, I would still have symptoms coming in and out, but it was a lot more tolerable. I could see that I was getting better. And then it was really about two full years before I decided like, okay, I, I think I'm I'm done with what I can call withdrawal. There was still plenty of collateral damage I had to fix. <laughs> I'm still kind of fixing seven years later, but um, the really truly terrifying stuff for me lasted about a year. And because of you know my work and my book now, so many people, share their stories with me and I hear different stories and very often I ask, okay, what was the difference between me and these other, and these other people who could not get off these drugs or who it's been three years and they are still having the issues that I was having for a year. And I don't have any hard answers for that. The only difference that I really see that the only kind of actionable difference I, I suppose that I see between myself and everybody else is that I was in a very unique position where the catalyst for me getting off of these drugs was having this bizarre opportunity to travel around the world for a year. And so because of that, I had this opportunity to completely remove myself from the situation I had been in for seven years, which wasn't good in New York. You know, I was struggled with my business. I struggled with my business partner. I struggled with New York in general, like we made no money. I mean, you know, every kind of standard thing about why life is hard, what happened. But when I was able to completely separate myself in that, because I was living in a hut in Thailand, there was nothing. It was clear the problem was me, right? That was it. I couldn't blame my situation on my business partner. She wasn't there. And because I was moving, I was moving locations in this weird little program every month. So we'd be in a different country every month. It was like a different opportunity to say, all right, what's coming with me this month and what is getting left behind. It provided not only a huge amount of structure and forced me to operate in ways just to live like I couldn't not find a grocery store and go get food. I we didn't have Postmates. I couldn't just lie in my own bad feelings. I couldn't, even if withdrawal, if I was in a bad wave, I still had to find a way to function and survive in these countries where I couldn't speak the language and I didn't know anyone and et cetera, et cetera. And that I think was a huge, huge reason why I actually did as well comparatively, because I, you know, we all are surprised at our own strength when we're put in a position to do it. And 
I was forced to be on high alert, focusing on things other than withdrawal for the year that I was in withdrawal. Most people don't get to do that. Instead, the whole world is just a reminder of their situation. And then when withdrawal comes up, they're able to be in their comfy bed with their creature comforts and all these things that we think make us feel better when oftentimes I wonder if those are the things that are really inhibiting us from actually breaking through and getting closer to where we need to be. It sounds like you doing all of that, you were taken out of a system where you were relying on everything and you actually did have to rely on yourself. And that was the catalyst for you to to do that. I'm just curious. I just want to jump back. When you were diagnosed and you went through all, when you were taking all these medications, did any one of the doctors actually explain to you uh, that these can have serious side effects or did they minimize the side effects? I mean, I saw the pamphlet. But they didn't talk to you about it. They didn't sit there and say, hey, before you take this, I got to tell you, there's some, okay. No. And also, again, keep in mind, it was 2001 and I was 15. Right. So we, you know, we didn't have the now 30 years of data that we have, right? We didn't have the internet where people are talking about all the crap that happened to them on this. So no, I had no idea. And then again, I wasn't seeing, it's not like I had a regular person who I was seeing every every month or every two months and we were checking in and talking that wasn't happening by the the last seven years of my medication history i was being given drugs by a doctor who was around the corner from me he was a gp and i remember about five years in one day he calls me and he says we never did a physical we should probably do that like i literally went in there and said i've been on these drugs at that point it had been uh, six or seven years i said i've been on these drugs for seven years I'm fine. Can you just prescribe him them? And he said, okay. And then every year when I needed refills, he'd just like call the pharmacy. So, I mean, again, whose fault is that? Is it the system? Is it his or is it mine for just not even questioning it? I mean, it's everyone has, everyone is responsible. Brooke, there was one other pivotal moment and this goes back to, I know I'm putting people into categories here with heroes and villains, but you know, it's okay, of, every good story needs a hero and a villain. One of the heroes in my mind was Kathy, your mom's friend who was a psychologist. Interesting. Okay. And that was, it. you were in a really dark place. And I was, mm-hmm. you know, as I'm reading it, a lot of people might have ended their life by suicide at that time. But she said some things to you that I thought were extremely wise and put you in a mm-hmm. different headspace. Yeah. So the interesting thing about Kathy is that in the realm of heroes and villains, um, she was the one who encouraged my mom to take me to a child psychologist in the first place because she was a psychologist in town. And so she also, I think, was in part recommending the psychiatrist. So it's interesting that we have these bookends, right? Like both she and my mom were part of the path to putting me on these drugs. They both were part of the path to get me off of them. Mm. So, you know, I think if, if nothing else, that's a testament to when you educate yourself and learn more information, then you become smarter and you change your opinions on things. But when I was deep in um, deep in withdrawal and having the really terrifying, intrusive, violent thoughts on, on the effects of withdrawal, when I called her and she was, I hadn't told my mom really what was happening uh, to that level, because even though my mom and I have such a pure relationship, the amount of, I didn't, I wanted to protect her like I didn't want her to know I was thinking these things because I, what could she do? It just, she already knew I was in a bad state. I didn't feel the need to, 
tell her everything. Um, but Kathy, on the other hand, you know, she she's a she's a professional and I've known her since I was three years old, even younger, maybe. So I could I and she was in Nevada. I was in New York. She couldn't do anything. She couldn't put me on involuntary psychiatric hold. So when I told her what was happening, she had enough knowledge at the time to say, I think that this is antidepressant withdrawal. I think this has to do with you getting off the effectsor. And but the one thing she said to me was that crazy people don't know they're crazy. And if you're aware that what you're thinking is, you know, quote unquote bad, um, then you're not going to act on it because you are, you are, your feet are still on the ground. You're conscious. You're aware of what's happening to you and it's terrible, but you're not acting outside of yourself, if that makes sense. There's a word for it and I can't remember what it is. Do you remember? Um, agonosia, uh, geez. No, it's not that. It's like, um, shoot. I don't know. There's a term for whether or not the patient is oh, oh, yeah. aware of what they're doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. That name escapes me, but I, I have another, yeah, another question here for you. Um, it, it's around like the, the darkness of the intrusive thoughts that you were experiencing. Mm -hmm. So that yep. was another really compelling part because I think it was the way that you wrote it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it was really constructed well where you, um, as the reader, you were like in your body. Yeah. So I, you know, I've seen this where there's these intrusive thoughts that feel like they're coming outside of the person, yep. right? And I've, I've also heard you talk about, and you talked about on this podcast, about not normalizing some of the dark thoughts that we have and that's part of, you know, part of our culture. And so, I mean, I was just, when you, when I was reading that part in your book, that same day, I experienced a session where, you know, one of my clients was talking about her rapist. And in my mind, and this happens sometimes, I like, I kind of zone off to, to turn into like Dexter. If people know who Dexter mm -hmm. is. Like, I, like in my mind, I was like going great, to hunt, hunt that guy down and murder yeah. him because he's out there, he's not in jail, and he could do it to somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I'm not going to do that. And so that's where my feet were on the ground. Mm -hmm. But those intrusive thoughts that were there took me away from that session for yeah. a brief period of time. And that's part of, I think, just a normal reaction to just being yeah. human. And we don't have the capacity to be open about that in our culture. But Kathy was clear to you, like, you... If you're crazy, you wouldn't know you're crazy. Right. Right. Yeah. So for me, um, the, the violent intrusive thoughts came, started coming in less than a week after I had been fully off of the effectsor. And they were distinctly different from the suicidal ideation. Like the suicidal ideation that I experienced on the antidepressants felt like... It felt like if someone said, think about a red tomato, and then you conjured the image of a red tomato in your head. Like I would see, you know, I would see a bus and I would conjure the idea very consciously of walking in front of it. It didn't feel outside of me and it didn't feel like psychological assault. With the, with the effects or withdrawal and the, in the violent thoughts that happened there, I mean, they were things like towards myself and other people. And it was like someone right in front of me. So it was the worst when I saw other people in other faces. So when I was in New York and I was like going to the grocery store, you know, you'd easily pass 50 people in one block. 
And it's like, I would see them. And in my mind's eye, it was like a veil that came down over my world. And I would see myself doing something terrible to them. Like I talk about in my, in one of my books, like kicking the walker out from under an old lady with a walker. Right. And I would see it as if it was real, but it wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't like, you know, there's a globe on my desk right here. It's not like I'm looking at the globe and it turns into a gnome and I think a gnome is there. That's, it wasn't that. It was like somehow I could see two realities at the same time. And again, the best comparison I have is to when you're driving on the highway and you just think to yourself, what if I just turn right off, right? It's like you're operating as you should and you have this really bizarre thought. They both seem like completely reasonable outcomes and you're, you're home in both places. Does that make sense? Yeah, so controversial subject here, um, the increased school shootings and uh, you know the violence mm. that we're experiencing in American culture we have some pretty strong data you know that suggests that you know many of these uh, these public shooters mass shooters were on multiple psychiatric drugs yeah and so you know you've experienced this firsthand I, I, I think that you could probably speak to how this could happen with the manner in which we're treating people who are struggling emotionally yeah, I mean, that topic is extremely fraught and very um, complicated. And to me, what's more interesting about that is not that people have intrusive thoughts and some people act on them. It's more that in what we know about a lot of the shooters is that they did not have the genetic ability to actually metabolize these drugs. So they were building up in a toxic way in their system. So for more information on that, I would point people towards the work the work of Dr. Selma Eichlin-Bloom Schieveld, which I'm she's Dutch, I think, and I'm completely butchered the pronunciation of her last name. But she's a forensic. Um, she's a she's a she she works in forensics and she's a psychiatrist and she specifically I think she's a psychiatrist. She works in forensics anyway. Um, she she does genetic testing on on a variety of folks and is actually mapping the pathways in which these drugs are metabolized and has started to draw conclusions between people who have a genetic inability to metabolize Zoloft. And when they do that, what happens is they go into more of a state of crazy people not knowing they're crazy. Yep. And um, that's when terrible things happen. I don't necessarily know, and I'm not going to speculate if that's the same thing that I was going to experiencing. I've done genetic testing on myself. I did not have, I do not have a genetic inability to metabolize these drugs. I um, am an, an intermediate metabolizer when it comes to effectors. So there is some argument to be made that the drugs did not work quite in my system as they would expect. But, you know, the, 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 the violence we see on the news is a very different manifestation of this although i'm not into i'm not unconvinced that it's not connected i just think it's another branch of this situation yeah this is it's the cyp450 pathway right uh, if you go to brooks substack happiness is a skill <laughs> she she does some writing on this area that i thought i think is well worth your time because we know that our you know our people who are getting these prescribed these drugs are not going through genetic testing so we are increasing the risk. No, they're not. And, and genetic testing is not the be all end all either. There's a lot of problems and questions that surround it. But I'm of the mindset that the more more information is is good here. 
And, you know, for the majority of people, they're probably not going to be in one of these buckets where they are a complete non-metabolizer of these drugs. But if you are, you really want to know. <laughs> you really want to know. And we're literally talking potentially life and death, either of you, possibly somebody else, or even just some other just really bad side effects. And it kind of to me seems like low hanging fruit. I mean, that's really my whole, you know, my whole thing at the end of the day with this stuff is that if I could do my life over again, we would have made a lot of different choices and I wouldn't be here, but, or I mean, I would, wouldn't be here talking to you about this probably. Um, hopefully I'd be somewhere else talking about other things, <laughs> but, uh, these drugs aren't going anywhere. Like they're not. And, I, that is not a cynical, it's not viewed through the lens of cynicism. It's viewed through the lens of just like, obviously they're not going anywhere. We just approved Lexapro for seven year olds, right? So how do we get people as much information as they deserve to have in order to make the choice that they want to make for their life? And that, that is, that is relevant to both going on these drugs and coming off of them. This needs to be a full spectrum conversation that going off of them needs to happen when we're talking about going on them. They need to be together. Patients need to know that there are no long-term studies. They need to know what the actual side effects of these drugs are that are maybe not as like easy to spot and violent. They need to know that about the genetic testing. They need to know that these drugs were designed for short-term use. They need to know that emotional blunting is a thing and, you know, tardive dysphoria and all of these things that, you know, some of us are just screaming about wondering why people can't get it. They need to be told that to that by their doctor in the first appointment, and it needs to be legally required. Amen. So I've, yeah, I've listened to you on other podcasts, some popular ones too, some other interviews. I hear some people in the media or podcasters, they always kind of couch their statements like, well, I know antidepressants uh -huh. have their place and, and they do help some people. And then they just kind of refer to them as overprescribed, um, as if they really are helping people. I'm actually interested to know your thoughts on this. I'll share my thoughts after you go. I'm particularly fired up about this today because of the Lexapro thing. And also I'm just tired and when I'm tired, like I'm tired of feeling like the work doesn't matter and I lose my filter a little bit. Um, makes for better entertainment though. <sighs> you know, I mean, look, I guess at this point we have to meet people where they are and we have to meet the culture and society where they are. And like I said earlier, these drugs aren't going anywhere and changing changing the way changing our culture <laughs> you know there's a look we need to do a lot of things that have nothing to do with the pharmaceutical industry in order to thrive as humans and i don't go out in the world and see that that is changing fast enough so knowing that i suppose that the only thing i can really do is just look at the research that seems to repeatedly which is interesting because we don't have a lot of repeatable research here I repeatedly see research that says that in about 15% of severe cases, these drugs can have some short-term benefit. So I am willing to concede that level of ground. However, that's not how they're being used. Short-term benefit, what are we talking? Maybe, what, four to 12 weeks? Yeah. That's not, that's not considered short-term clinically either. People are like, oh, let's try you for a year or two. That's not short-term. So 
if we were actually practicing by those standards that we seem to see over time, then I wouldn't maybe be as fired up about it, but that's just not how this happens. And if you don't abide by those standards, everyone likes to think of themselves as the exception. And I know that because I thought of myself as the exception for so many years, you know? I was one of those people who needed it. That was that, and everyone, you give people that inch and they're gonna take it. The problem is that that doesn't help. That doesn't help the 15% and it doesn't help the 85% either. I think one of the areas that we can probably improve upon is reaching parents. I think you've, you've talked about this a lot and I think you said that parents need to get help for themselves first on a podcast and I absolutely agree with that. Again, I see this all the time with the students and I'm like, I look at their family life and I'm like, listen, they need help first. They, they got to get their life in order. But I want to hear your thoughts as I often think there might be, for lack of a better term, a bit of a crisis right now with parenting because I think we're... We're not, I mean, as a parent myself, like we want to quell emotions. Like you can't feel anything. You, you know, you're crying right now. Stop it. Like I, I notice that with everybody, like go to the playground, you know, oh my gosh, don't, don't, don't act up. Don't do this. But I'm like, there are emotions in their children and shouldn't they be allowed to, to feel these things and sometimes in an extreme way. So I want to hear, I think that's one of the solutions is to reach them. But you, you talk about parenting a lot. I want to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> Yeah, I talk about parenting a lot for someone who isn't a parent. And, <laughs> um, you know, so I guess I reserve the right to uh, change my thoughts and feelings if I ever do become one. But, you know, I feel like more, you know, for me, what I see is the effects of the strategies we're imparting on our kids now, which just really don't seem to be working very well. So, um, and at the end, and, and I think like, I think one of the problems with parenting in, in our strategy and our view of parenting at this point is that you're supposed to be this completely, you know, selfless creature that is all about the kid. And in many ways, that's very true. And we have not, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, if people were really understood that their job as a parent was to create nurture the best possible human they could that requires a lot of selflessness obviously right but we're also all human and parents bring their own problems into the situation and i think it's absurd to look at a seven-year-old and say you are the problem without looking at the environment in the environment that the seven-year-old is in because the seven-year-old is just a sponge so if you fix the parenting you fix the kid now obviously we run into a big problem of resources and egos and self-awareness and financial issues and all these things that, you know, the individual situations are all complicated and unique. But on a general level, I have yet, I just, I have yet to see a, a situation where you've got a young kid who isn't the direct result of the influences that are being put on them. And so that's why I say, that's when, when parents ask me for advice about their kids, I say, get help for yourself. And I think that applies to adult children as well, because, you know, all this emotional entanglement and um, this obsession with making sure our kids are okay keeps them sick. It keeps people in their roles. It doesn't allow the children to figure things out for, their, for themselves and be independent and self, you know, self-regulate and fix their own problems, right? They need to learn to do that, whether or not they're three or 30. And it doesn't help the parent who has completely lost 
their own individuality and everything about them because they're so focused on the problems in their kids. All it does is throw a big light on all the problems and then people stay stuck there because it's their roles. To break through that takes a lot of work and self-awareness and often outside help. And honestly, I, I don't have an answer for how you do that other than maybe just planting the seed in people that there's that that option is there. Which is why cultural messages are so important. So like generationally, it's like we've shifted from communicating to our kids what is normal and how to respond. Like kind of mm -hmm. building up that strength and resiliency to go over the difficult challenges in life. I think the most difficult part for me reading the book was that in order to really recover from grief or overcome grief, yeah. and since, I mean, we are so resilient as human beings. We've been losing close people and family members throughout the history of our mm -hmm. of the human race. And so that's one thing we can do is that we can experience the pain of loss and kind of transcend that and kind of, and continue mm -hmm. to live fully is that when you pathologize the normal range of human emotions, you're not providing that person the opportunity to grow through it and learn mm -hmm. from it and feel the pain. Feeling the emotions is often part of the healing process. And so if we think about mental health as the numbing or decreasing of emotions mm -hmm. as if they're a symptom of uh, underlying disease, then we're actually getting in the way of, we're impairing natural recovery processes. So it, it's... It's not that surprising that we're fragilizing generations right now um, yeah. and communicating the message that they're incapable of handling what's in front of them. Yeah. There's a wonderful philosopher, uh, John O'Donohue, who I think I'm getting that right, who uh, he has a book called Walking in Wonder that I've been reading lately. And I was, I was just reading this last night. He talks about how when we experience the darkness of, of being human, whether or not that's fear or sadness or grief or loss or wh whatever it is, that there is a beacon of sacred light that is given to us during that experience. And that when you are given that beacon of sacred light, it stays with you and it remains there because the next time you are faced with some horrible human existence, that sacred light is there to remind you that you can transcend out of it and that you will if you just honor the fact that the sacred light is there and will always be there. And I think that by medicating our feelings away, what we are doing is robbing people of that sacred light so that when they hit a period where, and everyone does, I mean, <laughs> everyone, again, I was on antidepressants for 15 years. It didn't make me any less depressed. But what I didn't have was that sacred light to be able to pull myself out of it because I had never been able to receive it. I didn't know how to use it. And that's, I think, what we're robbing people of. I mean, it's, you know, it's like high level, it's kind of spiritual, whatever, but, you know, replace sacred light with resiliency. This is something you learn and it makes you a better, stronger, happier, more giving more appreciative, more grateful person because you really start to understand the fragility and the balance. And we are just, we're taking that away from people and we're seeing the results of it and it's not good. So we're into our second part of this episode for our audience. And so mm -hmm. I, I think we're going to start heading down the home stretch, but to head down the home stretch, because we've kept you so long, Brooke, you've been great. 
I, I do want to be able to, you know, talk about that recovery process. And one of mm-hmm. the things that does kind of, um, you know, underlie a lot of the messages is that there, there is some of this spiritual co- component in part yeah. of like meaning making and the mm-hmm. way that you begin to uh, kind of respond to your life. And there's this interesting gentleman who really seems to be, you know, a, a a primary player in being able to support you through some of these dark moments. Mm-hmm. And he's fascinating character to me, mm-hmm. Alan. And um, I just want to get an idea now that I have you here is what you think happened there from the way that he was intervening and responding. He was someone who was referred to you by, by your mother, who I, I think is also mm-hmm. a hero here. Yeah. What was happening? Yeah. So Alan is what I would call, I mean, he was a counselor. He wasn't a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but he he was a he was a counselor. He he helped people work through their problems, and he blended both Eastern and Western modalities together in this sort of in this in this very self compassionate driven way that was all done over the phone, which was very key for me because again, my experience in person with people was bad. I. I could feel more in tune with myself if I didn't have to think about somebody staring at me eight feet away. You know, I didn't hear the scratch on the, on the, on the, on the paper and wonder what they were writing. You know, I didn't feel like I was being studied. And so it was very important to me. I realized later to have, to just be on the phone and it wouldn't have worked on zoom either. Cause there's still that level of, you know, feedback, I, facial feedback. I, I needed it to be distant. And he he worked in a manner that really allowed me to use uh, feelings in my body and metaphor and symbols and whatever random thing came up in my head as opposed to the actual thing that had happened. Which again, this was so important to me because I had so many memory problems that I couldn't go back to, you know, the, what was 15 year old Brooke feeling like, you know, when you got the call that your father died, I, I couldn't connect to her at all. Another one of the things that came to mind in my head was this image of a man who was eaten to death by ants at the bottom of a well. And that was what was coming to my mind as opposed to what 15-year-old Brooke felt like. So a traditional you know, psychotherapist or CBT therapist or something couldn't deal with that because it didn't make any sense. Whereas what Alan did, he said, okay, well, this man is coming up. We don't know who he is or what he's doing there or what the message is. It doesn't matter. We're going to work with him. How's he feeling? (laughs) And then we would start to work through everything together. And it allowed me to not only access parts of my, you know, my psyche and my, my soul that I could not otherwise access through actual events that had happened in my life, but it kind of allowed me to talk about things in a way that wasn't about me, right? We were talking about the man in the well and the man in the well I think was some sort of projection. You know, I don't know if it was a collection of memories and that's just how my brain, you know, made sense in my head. And I mean, memories could have even been the movie I watched, right? Just, it was just the way my brain had put the puzzle together into that. I don't know if it was like a more spiritual situation. I don't know if it was a past life. I don't know if it was just like the lizard brain doing something. It doesn't matter. And we just didn't question it because that's who showed up and that's what we dealt with. And that was so huge for me because 
no one had ever given me the freedom to do therapy like that before. It wasn't a method. It wasn't based on a book. It was, how do we have compassion for this man, this creature who's coming to you? And how do we make him integrate back into me so we feel like he's healed? And through that process is when I actually started to heal. And we did this so many times. I mean, there's like, you know, I could write books on each of the individual ghosts, if you want to call them, that would come through my head because they were all different and they were all representative of something that I was feeling. And that was the way we dealt with it. I, I started, and maybe this is the way I was looking at it. I, I, I was seeing you as a soul um, that had previous experiences and that you're just in this body at this time and you have this mm -hmm. incredible purpose and somehow what became accessed was other experiences at other points in your life. That's how I was reading it. Yep. I don't know if that's how you meant it, um, but it felt like it began to, you know, I thought it was an important message about mm -hmm. spirituality. I thought it was an important yep. message on how those in the mental health field can get outside of their mm -hmm. limited uh, and restricted training and mm -hmm. being able to understand people differently. I mean, I started to see you, you know, more in a kind of a, a divine nature. I think that was integrated yeah. earlier too, with just your mom, mm -hmm. your mom's experiences yeah. and how she communicated to you. And it just, it seemed like everything that had happened to you in your life was even painful, as painful as it was, there was some greater divine purpose for it all. Mm -hmm. And, and maybe the reason that you're here right now, and we're having this conversation is because you're starting to kind of uh, live out what what your purpose is yeah maybe you know i think it can be frustrating to talk about this aspect of my recovery because people very often like to take the word spiritual and toss it into some woo woo you know bucket and or they want to toss into the religious bucket and I'm just kind of like it's neither here nor there right i mean it doesn't matter i think that a really good example is is wolves they're, they put some trackers on wolves and noticed that in areas where multiple packs of wolves live, they stay within their own boundaries, right? So when you actually look at the trackers, there was different colors on them. And you can see these five or six different colors where, you know, pack A always stayed within this radius and pack B always stayed within this radius. And they know, right? They know without, they just know that the other ones are there. And so I think another way to think about this is, you know, if the word spiritual and divine and all that really doesn't fit with you, well, then let's go to just instinct. Let's go to just our animal instinct in the way that we as animals relate to other people and sense other people. You don't have to have any spiritual experience to know that sometimes you're in a room with 10 people and one person walks in and the whole energy of the room changes, right? Without anyone saying a word. Yeah. So that is us communicating with other people communicating with other people's experiences on a completely unconscious soul level. And in my, my view of it is that we as humans have been around for a long time and we've put ourselves through a lot of terrible things. And there is collective memory of that that is encoded into all of us. And I think that some of us are, that's coming up a lot more than others. I think some of us are just really feeling all of that 
you know, all of these terrible things that have happened and we just know it's in us, right? We can't say that maybe it wasn't the one bad thing that happened to us. It feels like so much more. And that is actively trying to come out so we can release it and put good back into the world. And for the people who are doing that, I think, you know, they're the ones who are, who've been given this torch and, and, and it's coming up to say, hey, let's bring it out. Let's, 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 talk let's find a way to get all of this out of you so you can go put good back into the world and you can actually transform all this pain into something good and instead we're scared of those people because we're worried they're going to hurt themselves or they're going to hurt somebody else or they're acting in a way that makes us feel uncomfortable and so we try and medicate it down and push it away which only makes it all worse and just continues to perpetuate the cycle of collective violence and shame, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, that's a way we can look at it. That's a very like, let's just talk about it on an instinctual animal level. And, you know, we can put spirituality aside if we need to. Yeah, there's multiple ways to look at this. I'm kind of a science guy, so I can use actual science words to describe kind of mm -hmm. these same concepts like epigenetics. Yeah. That, yep, epigenetics is a great one. Right, mm -hmm. it's very much encoded into our DNA generationally. Yep. And, you know, mm -hmm. how the environment responds to us is whether this kind of comes to our to our experience and there's a purpose for it but then you know there, there's other things that are really critical in for us to be able to take on new perspectives because i do think meaning making is really important when you're struggling with your mental health what about quantum physics we talk about things like vibing right we can yeah. feel other people's energy and experience yeah. around them and that we can it's our intuition and yeah. there are hey you turn on the radio there's a frequency there we don't see it our wi-fi we don't see it are you going to say, you know, we're, we're all beings of, of matter and, and, and energy. Yeah. So we are in some way constantly experiencing it. And once I've started to become more connected to that, I've been able to experience it more with, with my yeah. clients and have developed an intuition that's there. What I loved about Alan's reaction to you is that there was a, a, a new relationship to your pain that was developed. Yeah. And one point he was just laughing at the, yeah. at the absurdity of it all. And I thought that was just a beautiful moment, you know, and, and you went on and you, and you started to take steps to kind of overcome what you were going through. Yeah. Brooke, you've been, yeah. you've been so great and we've kept you for you. so long. Um, I, I, I am in, there's so many things we didn't get into like the chop episode and just, you know, I've got many questions on that. <laughs> Do you want to ask a quick no, question? No, no. Well, Season 32, okay. episode six, it's a great 40 minutes of television. I watched the entire thing. So, <laughs> tell tell they must edit the crap out of that because it, you're like they're they, they're not tasting that stuff for like 30 seconds and then that but oh, it was no. just yeah. what how did you feel about uh well now i'm not gonna ask that because it was another contestant when, when you dropped the crab yeah tell me because it was just like you're watching the the, the the if you were to freeze frame the way they edit it She's in with she's experiencing withdrawal. She was like, she, I know she's like, but she too. was like, she, she her face just said, oh shit, <laughs> like it was, but it was the funniest <laughs> moment. I'm like, but it, and then they kept showing the crab just sitting there on the floor. They went back to it over and over again. Yeah, but I thought the uh, barbecue, I love that. What you did with that, that was good. That yeah. was really uh, looked really good. I mean the. I, I will forever be grateful to the editors of that show for not editing me into the complete and total mess that I actually was on that day. <laughs> they were very kind. Uh, they got some of my more colorful moments without 
without getting the ones where I was just like sobbing to my producer. And she was like, you need to find a way to calm down. Um, so they didn't put all that in, uh, thank goodness. But yeah, my my only goal on Chopped was to get through the first round. And when I dropped that crab, I was like, <laughs> oh, shit. I mean, well, and I, I had literally taken some of my sessions with Alan just to work on my fears around Chopped. And so, because I, again, I was in withdrawal. It was, that was coming up on the day. So I was like, this is what we're going to do. I mean, it seems like a very silly way to waste a precious hour, but this is what we're doing. And I remember thinking when I dropped the crab, like, all of this work was in vain. None of this matters, which means that none of the work I've done in withdrawal matters. Like, like it was this moment of like, oh, it's, it's all going to be bullshit. Like, just this is how the world ends um and uh then when i made it through that round i mean i was just i couldn't believe it and then i kind of took off and did and did well so it, it was it was the most emotional day of my life which is an incredible thing to say given that i just wrote a book about the most emotional year of my life but i've never been in an experience where you go from such sorry where you go from such a high to a low to oh my god i have to do this again to being really proud of yourself to being embarrassed for your business to being embarrassed for yourself and then the producer says well how do you think your dead dad would feel about this and oh you have to go cook again in five minutes and then you're just like <laughs> and then someone ex escorts you to the bathroom and listens to you pee like the whole thing it was just <laughs> boy oh. well your life certainly seems to be an adventure and that, that was an adventure um you know as well as your uh you know your remote year the, the trips that you made uh, excellent book i highly recommend it um it, it's a, it's just it's just a good read you know it's one of those books that you don't want to put down and mm -hmm. because it's so beautifully written i'm just really interested to know what you're what you're doing now um there's so many different aspects of who you are i'm just curious to know what your life looks like now and then how people can really begin to follow you and um you know just get in touch with what your your current mission is Sure. So you can find me all over the internet at Brookseem, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M. And my life now is, you know, striking the balance between really just adoring being alive and getting to do all these things that are in some ways so basic and simple, but that I love. Like I paint and I go for walks and I cuddle my dog. And if I can take a nap at two in the afternoon, I will. And I will relish every second of it because there's just this glory and the fact that I so love being alive and I'm so grateful for it and I want to just enjoy that and then also at the same time I want to speak publicly as much on antidepressant withdrawal and depression recovery as possible so I you know I speak as much as I can to whoever will have me uh, whether or not that's you know I can do corporate work I do um, you know I'm working on speaking at universities and medical schools and you know in, in contacts with other people panels i mean i was at the richard fee foundation which had to do primarily has to do with that adhd and um all the drugs there you know so i i just it, it's both i you know and then i still cook for a living too because there's a lot of really tough conversations i have and there's nothing better to me than having a tough conversation and literally getting to go make cookies and get paid for it so I, I have these kind of little things that I'm balancing, but I hope that over the next, you know, five years, I'm able to really make a strong career speaking on this topic and educating and bringing hope because, you know, we talked about a lot of, lot of hard things today, but the takeaway from this 
is that I love being alive and I was never able to say that. And I am, I don't even recognize the person in that book anymore because I, you know, look at a flower or a white butterfly or something and get teary. <laughs> so that is what the work is for. And that's what you can get to. That's where you can get yourself to if, if you can figure out a way to take control and, and help yourself. And so that's the message that I really hope to put out there while also providing actionable resources for people to safely prescribe and teaching um, professionals and prescribers how to identify withdrawal and keep their patients safe. The book may cause side effects. Brooksim, I really do want prescribing physicians, medical professionals, mental health professionals, educators, and parents to read this book. Mm -hmm. You have to understand the impact that these drugs will have on somebody. Mm -hmm. you, cannot, you cannot consent unless you're informed. And the work that Brooke is doing and the Radically Genuine podcast is doing is that we are providing valuable information that otherwise you will not get in the process. Many of the doctors still are not yet informed. And we know with this Lexapro approval that they'll just assume the drug is safe and effective. They're just gonna rely on the fact that, they are, that the FDA approved it or that their medical organization is recommending it in their protocols and they won't even understand the study data. They won't even have access to it and that's the that's the unfortunate reality of our current medical system. Brooke Seam, you are an amazing guest for these two episodes, and you are absolutely radically genuine, and we do appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thank you. It was really a pleasure thank to meet you. you. Thank you both. It was great to be here. Thank you. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.